Welcome everybody. So welcome to the uh, Seafarers and Crewing in the COVID-19 era and beyond Hong Kong initiatives. My name is Matt Treadwell, Vice President of Lloyd's Register here in Hong Kong and Taiwan. I'd like to introduce you to the panel. So first we have Mr. Bjorn Hulgaard, who's the CEO of Anglo Eastern Univan Group, Chairman of the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association. We have Mr. Mark O'Neill, President of Columbia Ship Management. Captain T.T. Chung, General Secretary of the Merchant Navy Officers Guild, Hong Kong, and the Fair Practice Committee and FPC Steering Group member at the International Transport Workers Federation. Also, Mr. Stephen Cotton, who's the General Secretary of the International Transfer, uh, Transport Workers Federation. Uh, so thank you, everybody. Unfortunately, we just have to let you know that, unfortunately, an emergency came up. So Mr. Terence Zhaowei is unfortunately not going to be able to join us today. Um, now, we've only got 40 minutes, so uh, we will get straight into the uh, topic. So at the moment, there are over 400,000 seafarers uh, that are currently being affected by COVID-19 on board the ships around the world. Lloyd's Register recently did a survey um, relating to the seafarers, and it's actually quite shocking some of the feedback, which is that only 8% of seafarers strongly agree that they feel valued in the role at this time, with only 13% strongly agreeing that they are performing an essential role during the pandemic. So if we start off, um, perhaps we can go to uh, Stephen Cotton um, with regards to um, what has been the biggest impact on the seafarer and the demand on the uh, ship owners and managers out there and it would be great if we could also get some information and uh, insight from Mark and Bjorn. Thanks, Matt, and uh, good, good day to everybody. Um, yeah, I think um, this pandemic, which frankly caught everybody off guard and has shown sometimes the inability of governments to react flexibly, um, has put immense pressure on seafarers. And I think... Um, I'm going to take a little bit of time, even though we don't have that much. I think the reality is somehow maritime survives with its complex nature, national identity, multinational crewing, civil aviation dependent. Um, and we've seen throughout this crisis, and again, I want to put on record that the ITF, its social partners, ship owners, the Ship Owners Association, the United Nations, IMO, ILO, we've all worked incredibly hard without politics to help the seafarers. Um, but the reality is um, our industry doesn't get the attention it deserves. Shipping's not appreciated as 90% of the world's cargo. And then the net result is the seafarers are not appreciated. You could argue if the world was full of American seafarers, maybe the situation might be a little bit different, but the reality and, and the feedback, and I'll come up later, from our, from our seafarers, which is pr predominantly, excuse me, someone's texting, the majority uh, are our seafarers that depend on this livelihood and are very professional, highly qualified, and yet just on a normal day-to-day -day routine, no, crew, no, no um, shore leave. So the first part is seven days a week, same, same people day after day, very isolated environment. Then the next situation is multiple different rules over the last nine months about how you get seafarer on, how you get seafarer off, what is a proper vaccinate, what is a proper um, test, 
what's not a proper test. And the ITF has worked very hard with um, all of the parties to come up with the protocols that are put through the IMO. Again, these organisations struggle to be quick. So the reality for seafarers is that exactly as you said, said Matt, a, a feeling of isolation and lack of value, monotonous routine, over time on contracts, particularly those from Asia Pacific on the longer contracts, and then you start to, to move into um, mental health issues, lack of appreciation, and that goes to a point, and again, we'll come up later about what does that mean for us in the long term, but, but the situation's been quite bad, and ITF inspectors been working with both companies here, uh, and of course our Hong Kong unions, to help, and help means manage immigration, help find solutions. But the reality continues to be seafarers are very frustrated. And at certain stages, some of our chat rooms were full of, don't tell me you've passed another IMO resolution. What does that mean about getting off? I was about to get off in Hong Kong and they changed the rules. And I think it's that the lack of clarity is the most disabling piece of situation for a seafarer. They can put themselves to a nine month contract, but they know they're going to get off. And so I think we'll see some challenges as we go forward um, about what that means for our prof you know, the profession of seafarers in the industry as a whole. But I think for us, massive, big disappointment that the governments of the world don't appreciate shipping first and then don't appreciate the seafarers that make it work. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, that, that's interesting, yeah. And, and also you mentioned about Hong Kong and, and the fact that previously, you know, it was notified that Hong Kong was an, an area which you could carry out tra crew transfers and then um, that was revoked. And uh, I think we'll go into that a little bit later as to uh, why that was. And, and also, you know, when it comes to communication um, about how we can maybe improve that. Uh, so uh, Mark, could you give an insight from the ship ownership side, ship management yeah. side? I, I think we are, as an industry, immensely capable of blaming um, events for our um, fundamentally uh, inherent woes. And, uh, you know, we, we, we look at IMO 2020, or oh, how crazy that was. We had plenty of time to prepare for it. And yet, you know, we there we were blaming uh, IMO and everybody else for bringing in this legislation that was, was, was wrong and, and we didn't get involved in a united fashion. Here we are blaming COVID-19, I think, for um, some uh, fundamental issues that perhaps we should have addressed in the past. And I think uh, we need to change the narrative. If you ask uh, the university students of, of the UK or in Germany or in Hong Kong uh, what their views and whether they feel valued, they will also say, um, no, we don't feel value at the moment. It's a pretty depressing time. It's a pretty depressing time for us all. Let's be quite frank. I mean, this is uh, the biggest crisis that most of us, certainly of my generation and uh, younger, have, have ever experienced and hopefully will ever experience. So it's going to have, you know, I'm not surprised if you ask, uh, you do a survey of your crew, and of course it always depends on the way the questions are put, that the, res the response is pretty negative. Of course it's pretty negative. I've got to tell you that of our crew, uh, none of our, uh, our crew's morale has never been higher. And I'll tell you why, and I'm sure Bjorn will say the same thing, because we have spent the last 
nine, 10, 11 months addressing some of those fundamental issues that perhaps the industry as a whole should have addressed before. Uh, identifying with our people, not just our crew, but our people and treating our crew as part of the organization, as part of our people uh, as a whole, not as a separate uh, entity. So identifying with their needs more. Communication, you know, fundamentally in any organization, uh, uh, problems occur when there uh, is, is a failure to communicate properly and never before has our company, uh, I'm sure that we're all finding the same thing, been better communicative with its people as a whole than through COVID-19 and the technological uh, uh, facilities we, we have available. You know, we are now looking at and have brought in mental health support solutions to uh, uh, address our mental health issues. 24-7 hotline for all our uh, crews on board have, have been in place for the last nine months. We're looking at diet, you know, specific tailored diet per ship. We're looking at benefits for uh, crews so they have uh, life insurance, disability provision, pension provision, training, uh, e-learning training, uh, free Wi-Fi, all of these things that goes to quality of life, that goes to uh, identification, that goes to a human resource approach which looks at crew not as an expense on your balance sheet, but as an asset and uh, looks at crew as part of the whole, not as 22 souls on board a vessel that you forget about until you have to rotate them. And, and this is fundamentally the problem. And I think COVID-19 has highlighted that. We shouldn't blame the COVID-19. Of course, COVID-19 brings its pressures. Uh, we shouldn't blame COVID-19. We shouldn't blame governments. Uh, of course, governments can always do more, but governments have their own issues to wrestle with, wider issues to wrestle with than our industry issues. Uh, we should look internally at ourselves and what we can do better, how we can work together, how we can collaborate more, how we can show more solidarity and, and, and really focus on uh, changing for the good and use COVID-19 as a catalyst uh, for, for bringing about long overdue changes in the way we, we, we conduct ourselves. So I'm against, I, I appreciate the good work the ITF's done, I appreciate the good, the, the good work all of these organizations has done, but we've got so much to do and let's do it now and let's use the COVID-19 um, pandemic as the opportunity to, to bring these changes in across the industry, not just to get uh, uh, within certain organizations that may be trying um, or have the resources to try uh, harder than, than others. Wow, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, and, and some of the key items there as well, ensuring that the right food is available to, to the individuals, keeping them uh, looked after and, and on board with having good uh, morale. I think that's, that's very important. And some may say that they may not have sufficient um, capability uh, to have this um, have these initiatives put in place uh, what what sort of challenges did you have and, and how long did it actually take from when you when COVID was actually first become an item to being able to enact this sort of um, program for your for your seafarers and colleagues I think we started uh, Matthew we started well before COVID-19 uh, and you know I think like a lot of companies, we, we were ready for it. Um, uh, we were looking, I, I think this, this, this whole issue of identifying 
what shocked me was um, when we started with mental health support solutions, um, probably about a year and a half ago, um, I, I got a report saying that one of the trends was that crew felt they were part of an invisible sector. And that breaks your heart. You know, I, I've been in the army, I've been uh, stuck out in, in, in the wilds where you feel invisible, you feel uh, uh, that th there's no communication. To, but to feel part of an invisible sector and, and that had to change. And then we looked internally how we could uh, change, change that for the better and, and bring the crew back into the fold of the business and look at your people as one people, not just uh, sure, those, those employees are sure and those on board and different, different uh, uh, principles apply to each. And I think once you do that and once you combine that with better communication, and we have the means to communicate now, for goodness sake, we should be communicating with the vessels on a daily, on an hourly basis. We should be having video, and we do, you know, that the directors are now calling the vessels uh, uh, regularly and identifying. I'm calling the vessels uh, every morning. I have an hour of my time where vessels can call me and bring up any issue. I mean, that, and, and that should be, why shouldn't, in any organization, why should an employee not be able to phone up the CEO if, if they have an issue and they don't feel as though their their voice is being heard? That applies to the crew as well. So I think, you know, we're not alone in this and I'm not pretending we are. A lot of companies are doing a lot of good things, but COVID-19, there is a lot of positive news that has come out of COVID-19 in the way uh, shipping companies and other companies run their businesses now going forward. People have been put right at the fore. What matters to each and every one of us when we get out of bed in the morning? We've all had time to think about that. And the answer is always the same. It's people. Um, you know, whether it's our families, our friends, or our employees, or our, 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 our seamen. It's people. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Mark. And Bjorn, with your, with your work as well, um, with the Hong Kong Shipping Association, um, could we get an insight from yourself? Well, I think we can blame governments. I think, um, I think this COVID-19 nine months have shown um, that, you know, when, it, when, it, when it's crunch time, then governments of this world can coordinate, right? Everyone takes this myopic, egocentric, beggar thy neighbor mindset and says, I will enjoy the benefits of shipping. You're welcome to come with your goods and services in my port so that my community, my people can shop in the supermarket, can, can get closed, can flick the switch and get electricity, can get medical supplies. I mean, really 90% of everything really does move by ship. And we're, you know, most of us are huge beneficiaries of that global supply chain. But when it comes to making sure that seafarers actually can move freely across borders with the right protocols in place to ensure you know, the health and safety of the seafarers and of the local populations. And most governments, unfortunately, have taken the position that, sorry, not in my backyard. You can go to the next port. So the, the core of this issue really is this lack of coordinated approach between governments. Shipping is a global industry and shipping needs a global coordinated response from the beneficiary of the supply chain. Now, when, when Hong Kong, as you said, as the first uh, port opened up in early June, it was the only port in Asia 
with the result that ships uh, herded into Hong Kong to do crew change, overwhelming the system. And that led to a, a, a late July, six weeks later, you know, a, a curtailment of that freedom in Hong Kong so that only ships doing cargo works were allowed to do crew change. And ships called for many other reasons. Ships called for provisioning, for bunkering, for repairs, etc. And those ships can't do crew change. So that's somewhere else. I mean, we've had situations where you had to do cargo chains, uh, cargo work in Hong Kong to do crew change. You had to be Chinese to be relieved in China. In Korea, you could do crew chains, but only after two weeks of quarantine for the, for the joiners. In Japan, only after two weeks at sea for the ship. In Singapore, at a point of time, only if you had Singapore flag. I mean, there were so many restrictions on the ground and it was so uncoordinated. Um, and, and I really think that that's, uh, that's shameful um, for the governments of the world. And it, of course, it goes back to the fact that, that the populations, the public, don't appreciate how important shipping is to the well-being of all of us. Right? So, so, you know, I, I, I get that. Um, since, you know, except for the first two months or so of this pandemic and the total lockdowns in the beginning, the reality is it's actually been possible to do crew change. It's just been a question of how much money you throw at it. How many days of deviation do you want to do? Is, is one too much? Is two? Is five? Is 10 days of deviation? If you want to go to the right port, you can do crew change, right? But, but, but of course, that means that big, you know, big owners and big managers with deep pockets and, and, and great networks, they have been able to, to get things done. I mean, Anglo East, and we've got 650 ships in management. We've done 32,000 crew movements since 1st of April. Uh, we have five ships left with um, two dozen people on board who have been aboard for more than 11 months. And we will get them off very soon as well. So I, I it means that 99.9% of, of, of the people have been able to be relieved and we continue to do it, right? But it has cost uh, our poor owners, right? Something to the tune of 30,000 US dollars per ship per year on average, extra to get this done, right? That's $20 million for a company like ours. For Hong Kong flag vessels, that about 80 million US dollars, so 600 million Hong Kong dollars extra expenses to, to, to do it like we have done it. And for many companies, that's just not possible. And that's why to this day, you continue to see 300,000, 400,000, whatever the number is, people trapped at sea because companies say, can't do it here. It's, you know, cause that's gonna cost $6,000 per person or whatever. Can't, you know, let's wait four weeks and see if it gets better. And unfortunately it doesn't, right? So, um, it, 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 it's been frustrating, um, but, but you know, I think we are, we are moving forward and I'm hopeful and, and, and um, I believe that in the next six months, we will see solutions with the rollout of these vaccines and they'll, you know, then we will return to some sort of normalcy. What damage this has done long-term in terms of our, you know, our industry's ability to recruit young people into shipping and to go on board ships, uh, that remains to be seen. Um, yeah. It's a sad state of affairs, but uh, so we are where we are. Right? One, one of the things that, it, that you sort of uh, highlight there, so obviously when this pandemic first took place, it affected 300,000 healthy seafarers uh, initially. And um, I suppose that then the next question would be, 
you know, how do we ensure the uh, safety of the crew once they're off the ships? Because obviously being on board the ships and, and being away from the uh, contamination, then being exposed to new risks when crew changes are taking place, there needs to be some control and some measures uh, ashore as well. Um, so we're kind of um, running a little bit behind time here. So I'd like to then go on to a um, case example. So we see, we see and hear a lot about uh, the statistics. Um, so we have a, a case uh, that uh, I think Stephen would like to uh, maybe mention with regards to uh, a seafarer that required medical attention. Stephen? Yeah, I think there's a couple of, this issue an issue goes to the point about the, the lockdown period. So Bjorn, this is after the first two months. This is a Russian seafarer who basically had a stroke and couldn't get, I'm going to just say it, the Indonesian authorities to allow medical attention to visit the vessel. So the Russian Seafarers Union contacted us. We contacted the IMO and the ILO and we had to use government uh, connections to get access to the seafarer and, and I think we all understand a stroke on board a ship is a really significant risk and it needs urgent treatment. We were able to get the, the seafarer the treatment and he's back at home in recovery in Russia but the reality was there's lots of cases like this and uh, what, you know on one level I agree with Mark, a positive attitude and um, you know I'm impressed with the work they've been doing on mental well-being and we'd love to be part, party to that conversation in a more industry-wide approach. But the reality is we've got to reassure the seafarers. And when you look at your, your numbers, Matt, that's why. If a sea, you know, Make no mistake, our seafarers talk to each other. We, we, we've dealt with 13,000 cases across all the inspectorate. And most of those calls have actually been, can I go to that port? Can I get off the ship? And if I want to get off, as in, and this is where it's been a bit of a challenge and like I, I feel I'm fatigued to the level, the seafarer, that I'm a risk to myself, to the crew. And frankly, even our collective agreements don't really allow for how do you deal with that situation. We say to them, don't get off in that port because you can't go anywhere. Or as Bjorn says, you need to pay $5,000 on a private jet or whatever it is. So the reality has been seafarers are frustrated. Yeah, we say everywhere they're essential workers. Right now, we're working on a resolution in the UN and at the ILO, but we've only got 44 countries to make them essential workers. We've had a lot of good noise from governments, but not many have turned those good noise into concrete acts. And I think that's the frustration I share with Bjorn, that everybody, you know, we've enlisted the multinationals and agree. I, I agree, you know, it's very strange for the ITF. We agree with the ship owners, charge the, transfer the cost up the line. You know, let's like on this one, we're really together and it goes to that collaboration. And I hope learning from our cracks in our industry that we can build a stronger collaboration because it's always a ship owner that has to pick up the extra cost. IMO 2020. I agree. But that was because one eye was half closed, Mark. I'd agree with that. But the next round, 2030, 2050, we need to be much more dynamic. But Stephen, don't, me, don't you see this as a communication issue? I mean, we 
sometimes I think we all fail, and not just with seafarers, but sometimes with, with, with our colleagues as well, to treat people as intelligent human beings. You know, seafarers are not sheep that we just heard from one port to the next. Communicate with them, give them the means to communicate as well, give them unlimited free Wi Fi on board so that they can see for themselves and we can ram it home that look, there is no point taking you off at port X for you to be stuck in some horrible hotel for, for, uh, you know, four or five weeks or whatever the quarantine period is, then fly you back to your, to, your, to your home where you'll be stuck in another quarantine and then you can't get back to your village because there's an outbreak. Stay on board a safe ship, receive pay, receive decent meals, receive uh, everything else that, that, that you receive, you know, and then treat them as intelligent human beings. And for the most part, you're always going to get a few that say, no, I still want to go home and go through that process. For the most part, they'll get it. Uh, treat them, isolate them. Don't identify with them, cut off their communication, don't look after them, and you'll get the, the 400,000 uh, number or the 13,000 number that calls Stephen up and say, can I get off here, can I get off there? We have to treat these people as intelligent human beings and, and explain to them why it is we do what we do or sometimes we don't do what we don't do in the same way as the people are sure. Uh, I come back to my university analogy, you know, uh, explain to the students why they can't go out and party and they generally will get it. There'll still be some who don't. It, we, have to, we have to treat them as intelligent human beings. And, and uh, uh, I think we're doing that more now. I think on just on that point and the communications, I've been around a long time and there was a time when we thought the solution would be expand the bandwidth, give them more access but we haven't factored in a pandemic where the family tells you I'm sick, when are you coming home? All of those stresses and strains, and we, you know, we have to go into that communication point. When we deal with a seafarer, we also have to deal with their immediate and extended family. We, you know, what about the seafarers at home that have spent their money expecting to come back? What about a seafarer in the Philippines in the middle of a lockdown whose father's got COVID with a very poor medical system? You pile a load of pressure on, and I think, you know, the idea about mental well-being or skilled people to counsel them is going to be more and more critical because those issues pile up. And, you know, and if we look at if we look at our panel, if we talk about gender balance, men are not so well known for sharing their problems. Put a multicultural group of seafarers together. They're not going to share in the galley how emotionally upset they are. And then they tend to, to do desperate and dangerous things. So I think, yes, um, it's a frustrating thing, but you know, all those protocols that Bjorn talks about, we all collaborated absolutely 24 hours a day. We got the UN to put the resolution out, but frankly, it surprises me how little authority the secretary general of the UN has when it comes to making essential workers cross the border solutions. And if you look at it from our perspective, we, I, I'm saying, and I'm in a lot of meetings at the moment, the global supply chain is we all talk about due diligence and protecting this and looking after that. If you can't have the pillar that's shipping safe, sustainable, and of course, fatigue and well-being all impact safety, there is no doubt about it. You know, if you can't protect the whole supply chain, then we're going to have problems. So, I mean, I think it's really good to be on a panel where people are letting rip because I think it's critical that we've all got frustrations I hope that when it gets back to some level of normal, we don't just leave the frustrations in the COVID period and we actually start to build the solutions around them. No, definitely. Um, and then I'd just like to uh, also um, go to Captain Chung because he also has a case uh, with an, a, an example. 
and sort of the, highlighting the impact on the seafarer as well as the family. I think there's a, there's a part there you mentioned about the communication, but also it's important uh, what we should communicate or not communicate because sometimes uh, landing um, issues that are at home on board a seafarer who has the inability to, to do anything, it can put that additional pressure, which we have to also um, do some training or awareness on as well. Uh, Captain Chung. Yes. Yes, you know, the communication with the seafarers is very important. And you know, at every place, every port, there are different measures to prevent this COVID-19 from expanding uh, in the community. So we have to, in our uh, duty of our, our union, so we have the obligation to inform, to communicate with our members, uh, but not uh, only our members, but all seafarers around the world, and you tell them all the measures of every port, uh, how do they uh, be taken uh, for preventing the spreading of the COVID-19, and uh, we have did it, and we did it. And in Hong Kong, I would like to introduce uh, some briefing about uh, uh, what we have done uh, in during the pandemic. But, uh, definitely, we are not uh, fighting alone. Uh, we are uh, working closely with uh, all the stakeholders in Hong Kong marine industry. So, so as the pandemic in Hong Kong uh, became frustrated again uh, since uh, July, uh, the effort of marine industry is struggling for relaxation of compulsory quarantine measures what uh, visiting ships and crew chains become a uh, burst bubble. Now, in order to avoid the infect crew to be important cause transmission to our community, the Hong Kong government have again rejected crew change for non-cargo operation vessels. At the same time, we quite all on cargo operating vessels to quarantine and anchorage 14 days before operation in Hong Kong under this policy. The ship's crew not only lose hope to be repatriated or get on board for work, this ship entering Hong Kong for replenishment or maintenance uh, purpose are now also being uh, affected and need to be quarantined compulsory. But restricting crew change is definitely not the way out. You know, uh, in some stakeholders of the industry have uh, a proposed uh, solution to the government of Hong Kong to enable safe crew change. Now the purpose, including the use of uh, charter flight to pick up and transfer crew members and to cooperate with large crew ships, then have been anchored in Hong Kong as a venue for immigration uh, procedures, uh, venues, uh, virus testing, crew stays and group transport purpose, etc. Though the uh, proposal aimed to ensure zero contact between the seafarers and local community. It also complied with the point-to-point -point transfer requirement of crew members by the Center of Health Protection of Hong Kong. Though we strongly request the Hong Kong government should actively consider to adopt the proposal of, for the benefit of the community and all transport workers, including seafarers. No, I'm not blaming our government, but I only wish the government can take some proactive action to have the crew change in Hong Kong to open, I think, a law of a way to, for the seafarer have the crew change in here. No, definitely. I think absolutely we need to be thinking uh, how to ensure also the people are sure when we are doing the crew change and then thinking a bit more of the wider 
supply chain there. Uh, and, and one of the things that we were going to um, sort of go into before, which was about do we see uh, any impact on future recruitment based, the, based out of the experiences our currency fairs have had uh, and, and the mixed opinions of whether they are going to stay in the maritime industry. Uh, I suppose based on, uh, maybe some, we could go into to either um, uh, Bjorn and Mark with regards to um, whether they have been able to identify uh, or at least um, get that insight from the crew and what has that typical feedback been from the crew in terms of what support has been made available and where they see that the solutions lie. Um, maybe we go to Bjorn first. Thanks Matt. Well I think, I think uh, listen, I, you know of course you need to communicate with your crew, of course you need to make sure they have plenty of uh, internet connectivity and, and, and availability to communicate with their families and friends. But at the end of the day, you got to get them home, right? This is, this is not something that can be postponed indefinitely, you know, just because, just because it's worse to get off in a, in a bad port or things are worse at home. You need to get these people off, right? And, uh, and I think, you know, in, in our case, that's been the the resounding feedback that they appreciate all we do to get them home, to actually relieve them on time, right? So, so, and for me, that's the only solution. This is not, this is not war. We are not in war. We are dealing with something that has very simple solutions on the ground if there was a willingness to deal with it, right? So, so, this, so this, is, this, is a great, yeah. this is a great time to sort of come in on, on the, the situation with regards to Hong Kong specifically with the issue that we, we've talked about before about June. Um, and, and the reason why, uh, so, so Hong Kong was one of the first jurisdictions to adopt the UN guidelines calling for seafarers to be classified as essential workers. Um, and however, there was a small minority uh, that sort of uh, from the seafarers and agencies that, who didn't follow the guidelines, which resulted in um, everybody really losing out. Um, so how should we deal with those people who, and those organizations that are not following the guidelines that is stopping uh, governments to, to take the initiatives well, and guidelines? Well, 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 firstly, we should make sure that, that seafarers follow the same protocols that are in place for everybody else, right? I mean, why, why would seafarers come to Hong Kong and not be PCR tested in the airport when everybody else is? I mean, that's, that's the first mistake, right? So, and again, that comes back to these, we have the protocols. This is not rocket science to put in place safe, secure corridors to arrange uh, crew chains anywhere, right? So the only reason, the only reason that governments can take this beggar thy neighbor view is because shipping continues to deliver, right? Why is it that, that the airline, uh, aircraft pilots and, and, and the air crew, they get exempted from from um, from from getting into a, a country, it's because otherwise the plane wouldn't come, right? Now, but for ships, somehow, everyone gets away with letting the seafarers stay on board indefinitely, and the ships still deliver the coal, the iron ore, the oil, the finished goods, the food, the medicine, etc. And we all continue to enjoy it, but the people who at the coal face make sure we can. They don't get any help, right? So, I mean, the best thing that could happen was that, that, that all ship owners in the world got together and said, well, now we stop for two weeks until, uh, until uh, we get 
you know, open, open uh, paths for, for seafarers. Or the seafarers said, well, this is it. I mean, it would be better for ship owners also if seafarers said, over, we don't want to do this anymore. It's, it's just not necessary. But for me, it's like, it's silly we continue to struggle like this and it just makes things more difficult and more expensive, harder for everyone, not least for the guys on board, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not in the camp that says that, well, let's just, let's just wait and see. And if you communicate and uh, this is hard for everyone. No, people can, people can and should get off the ship on time. That's what they signed off for. And our job as managers is to deliver on that promise, right? So, um, yeah, that's my no, Definitely. I suppose what we could do is, uh, because we're, we're running uh, short of time, what would be quite interesting is to, to get what's the biggest lesson learned that you think and what piece of guidance or advice that you would offer to whoever it may be, you can uh, address it to the governments, you could address it to various other stakeholders. What would your lesson learned be and guidance for others out there? So maybe Mark. I think um, my, my biggest lesson learned is, uh, to the extent I needed reminding, is the importance of people um, in our organizations. And the talk prior to COVID-19 was all about technology and digitalization. And, you know, uh, without blowing Stephen's trumpet, uh, you know, he represents the people, our people. Uh, on board the vessels and uh, and uh, people ashore, you know, people are so massively important to our organisations and identifying with those people through communication and through other through the, these those other good things uh, that I talked about with is is really really important. If you identify with them and you say, look, we're all having to go through some pretty major times. This is the greatest. I, I disagree with Bjorn. Uh, 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 on very few things, but on this, I do disagree with him. This is the greatest worldwide restriction of civil liberties and movements ever. Uh, let's not underplay this. This is, this is a wartime situation, plus, plus, plus. And if you identify with our crew and you say, we are going through this, bear with us. We're doing everything we possibly can for you. We're, uh, we, we, we're treating you exactly the same way as we're treating our people ashore. I myself, I identify with the group. I haven't seen my own kids for five months. I can't travel to the UK like I want to. We're all going through this problem together. Then um, you, you will treat them as intelligent human beings and we will get through this. But that's the most important lesson. Um, importance of people and identifying and having them identify with you. Thank you, that's great. C Captain Chung? So this is a brand new pandemic for everybody in the world. And we wish we may make uh, some contingent plan in the future. Maybe we will have some, some other pandemic again and next year. We don't know. That's why we have to learn it from this time. And we will plan, well, well plan for in the future. For our, maybe for our marine type industry. Thank you. And Stephen? I think for me, um, so fully accept Mark's words about it's all about people, but perhaps recognising that when you have a square table, people sit on other sides of it and it's much better to have a round table and work out how do we go forward on these issues. And there's just a question in the chat. 
everybody's come to the party to try and find solutions. The only ones that I feel have been missing, and again, I'm advocate for the ship owners here, a number of charterers have put what I would describe as outrageous clauses in charter parties, denying crew change as an issue and saying there will be no crew change and I fix your vessel. And that does not follow the, the due diligence, sustainable development goals, all the key ESG criteria that we have to deal with today. So the big message for me is let's build on this, these challenges. Let's work more collaboratively and let's answer the fact, why doesn't the, industry, the world at large appreciate uh, global shipping the way it should? Thank you. Great, thank you. Uh, and Bjorn, if you can be quick and then we'll have, uh, hand over to, to Nicholas. Very, very quickly, I, you know, I just think that when this is done and dusted, let's get the protocols in place for next time, right? And so that nations of this world have a, a, an escalation method to actually put you know, protocols that work in place for key workers of all sorts. This is because of the uncoordinated efforts of, of governments around the world that this be a suffering like this, and it can be done better. So that's my, that's my ending. Great. Okay. Thank you, everyone. So we've just run out of time. So uh, is Nicholas here or are we? Well, I'm, right, I'm right here and I'd like to thank you very much. Right. It's been a very spirited, very insightful uh, debate, uh, discussion. Thank you very much. Mark, also, I want to congratulate you for your recent um, election as president of uh, Intermanager. So best of luck with your new uh, challenges and tasks. And uh, thank you again to everybody for, for being with us. It's been exactly what I was hoping for in terms of a panel, very spirited debate and very insightful. Thank you very much. And Matthew, thank you for moderating. <laughs> thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.